Welcome to the New Testament Review. Where every episode we discuss an influential piece of New Testament scholarship. I'm Ian Mills. I'm Laura Robinson. And we're both PhD candidates at Duke University. Today's text is Canon Formation and Social Conflict in 4th Century Egypt, Athanasius of Alexandria's 39th Festal Letter. And this was written by David Brackey in uh, 1994. That title's a tongue twister. It really is. Uh, Ian, this is our first David Brackey episode. Have we ever had a David Brackey show? We haven't. We discussed his work in the Michael Williams Gnosticism episode. Awesome. And today, we are joined by one of my favorite human beings, Nathan <laughs> Tilley. He's a uh, PhD candidate at, surprise, surprise, Duke University in early Christianity. And he knows a lot about a few of the things we're talking about that Laura and I aren't exactly experts on. Welcome, Nate. Hi, y'all. Thanks for having me on. Who are you? What do you work on? Usually, I'm working on things in later times, in the 7th century right now, working on a Syriac author named Babai the Great. So, Laura, you know David Brackey. Uh, I do, or at least I did when I was an undergrad. Uh, I knew David Brackey when he was the chair of the Religious Studies Department at Indiana University. David Brackey is the chair of History of Christianity at Ohio State. Uh, and before the before he was at Ohio State, he taught at Indiana University, which is my alma mater, go Hoosiers. And if you listen to the Gnosticism show, you know that David Brackey is best known for his work on Gnosticism. But he also works on early Christian monasticism. He works on asceticism uh, and the development of orthodoxy and heresy in earliest Christianity, which is what we're going to be talking about today. What is this text about? Brachy is looking at the 39th Festal Letter of Athanasius, not one of those texts you grew up reading in Bible study. This letter is famous for being the first text in all of Christian history to name the 27 books of the New Testament that are found in most contemporary New Testaments, and only those 27 as canonical scripture. If you pick up any history of the canon, usually Athanasius is sort of the end point. He is what everyone is working towards. When you hit the 39th Festa letter, you've reached the modern, quote-unquote, traditional canon. This letter is also notable for Athanasius' discussion of the, quote-unquote, criteria by which canons were created, um, which has, for the last 50 years, been one of the main approaches to discussing the development of the canon, which... I think is inexplicable, but we're not going to have time or space to talk about that today because Brackey himself brackets it. Brackey instead wants to look at what is going on socially, politically, and ecclesiologically in this letter, and argues that instead of serving as an endpoint in the development of the canon, this letter was part of the fight over the canon, and also that we are probably misunderstanding what the fight over the canon in 4th century Alexandria was really about. He's going to argue that it's not so much about whether or not to include a fifth gospel, but about what it means for something to be canonical or scriptural, and where authority comes from. Now, Nate, I've been referring to this fellow named Athanasius. Who was he? Well, Athanasius lived a somewhat exciting and also controversial life. A later Arabic chronicle says that he was born to pagan parents and became a Christian when his widow mother converted, although that's all hard to know. More importantly, we know that Athanasius was present at the Council of Nicaea, 
controversies over the theology of Arius, and he was there as the secretary of Alexander, the then bishop of Alexandria. Three years after Nicaea, in 328, after the death of Alexander, Athanasius takes over his bishopric and is then the bishop of Alexandria. During his time, Athanasius was involved in a number of controversies, resulting eventually in a stunning seven exiles back and forth from Alexandria. He eventually died in 373 and is mostly remembered, probably by a lot of you, as the architect of pro-Nicene theology and even creating the category of Arianism as an ism. Can you give us a sentence or two about the Arian controversy? The Arian controversy is a series of debates over the legacy of a presbyter from Alexandria, Arius. Arius's theology involved teaching something like Christ being a mediating figure between the high God, Father, and the rest of creation. And the Nicene Council attempted to resolve these debates with the term homoousios, saying that Jesus was homoousios, meaning of the same substance or being as the Father. This term, however, was very controversial and needed a few decades of clarifying and resolution until it was more accepted to a certain extent by a wider range of bishops. But before we have the Festal Letter, there are other early Christian writers who, um, if they don't have the canon, they write down a list of New Testament books, books that we would now call the New Testament, that they consider to be authoritative, even if it's not the 27 we have now. Either they are missing books that we now consider to be part of the New Testament, or they include books that we don't put on that list. One of these early Christian writers who makes such a list is Eusebius who includes a number of lists on his books that we do consider to be part of the canonical New Testament, right? He has the four canonical Gospels, he has Acts, he has the Epistles of Paul, he has a former Epistle of John in an Epistle of Peter, and he allows for the possibility that we might put the Apocalypse of John on this list, but he specifically says that this is if it seems right. That he seems to acknowledge that some people consider the Apocalypse of John, the Book of Revelation, to be canon, and other people don't. And there's a ton of debate in the church at this time over the canonical status of Revelation. So we know a number of proto-Orthodox fathers didn't accept this book as canonical. Right. Uh, Eusebius also has two other categories of books besides the recognized books. He also talks about the disputed books, which are books that some people accept and some others. And he also talks about the spurious books, which he considers to be outside the bounds of good uh, of good Christian practice. Another really important list is what we call the Muratorian Canon. Uh, and this text's origin is really debated. There is an unresolved controversy over whether or not this belongs to the 2nd or 4th century. It's a Latin text that's clearly a translation of Greek and has some very weird grammar. But this more or less has the same list as Eusebius, except Hebrews isn't on there, James isn't on there, and the Petrine epistles aren't on there. And it includes the Apocalypse of John, as well as the Apocalypse of Peter, and, interestingly, the Wisdom of Solomon as a New Testament text. Other relevant considerations are the Syriac canon, which doesn't have the second or third letters of John, the second letter of Peter, doesn't have Jude or the Apocalypse. In fact, those texts don't make it into Syriac scripture until the 6th century with the Harclean version. And a worthwhile aside there is we're talking as if the New Testament canon is totally settled for us today. It's worth mentioning that the Ethiopic church has never held the same 27 books. They include a number of additional books, lest we are too uh, Western-centric. Debates raged on, and Athanasius is weighing into such debates in 4th century Egypt. 
Bracky is arguing that when we think about canon, we shouldn't think about canon necessarily in terms of criteria or specific questions of which book or what book should be in, but in terms of the bigger questions about social practices at the time. What was Athanasius doing? What was the church like at the time? Why did this come up in the first place? The letter that's under discussion in the article is the festal letter that Athanasius wrote at Easter 367. Festal letters were typically written around major feast days, typically Easter, to address contemporary issues in the church. In particular, this article is especially interested in Athanasius negotiating and arguing about the meaning of teaching and teaching authority in Alexandria. Right. Athanasius is interested in arguing that Jesus and Jesus alone, as reflected in the 27 books of the New Testament, is the teacher, and only he should be called teacher. And this is really interesting set within its Alexandrian social and intellectual context. You see, Alexandria is the home of intellectual, scholastic, academic Christianity. So far as any of our evidence suggests, it was these sorts of schools oriented around charismatic teachers, these what Brackey, imitating Rowan Williams, is calling academic Christianity. These predate other kinds of Christianity, or ecclesiastical Christianity in Alexandria. So the first Alexandrian Christian we know about is a guy named Basilides, and Basilides was the founder of a school, the school of the Basilidians, who, according to Epiphanius, are still hanging around in the 4th century. And he was a sort of Neoplatonic thinker. He's the sort of Christian that would have classically been called a Gnostic, although that's a bit tricky, um, even as Bracky uses the terms. But what he certainly is, is an academic. He writes commentaries, which, which, so far as we know, he's the first Christian to do that, to appropriate this Hellenistic method for engaging in grammatical scholarship and apply it to the Gospels. And he has disciples who carry on his teaching, and engage in detailed discussions of things like chronology. At the same time, Basilides' tradition involved new prophets. This isn't just dry scholasticism as we might understand it in the Middle Ages or today. This is an elitist group that is simultaneously doing detailed grammatical exegesis and claiming prophetic inspiration for their scholarship. From the more proto-Orthodox side, we can see a similar tendency with the well-known Origen and Clement of Alexandria. We know Origen trained as a grammaticos, so a lot of his work was reading, interpreting literature, and doing other literary tasks that we might think as, of as scholarly. We know also that there's some tension between this academic model and the growing Episcopal church-centered model, because Origen was invited to churches to give lectures or a disputation on some theological topic. And it was these invitations, among other things, that put him into conflict with Demetrius, the, at that time, Bishop of Alexandria. As Bracky would have it, Demetrius um, sort of introduces ecclesiastical Christianity to Alexandria, and by inviting Origen in, sort of tries to domesticate or ecclesialize this academic model of Christianity. But these tensions continued to grow as Origen's fame and charisma was more and more widespread. Beginning around 215 or so, Arjun travels around the Mediterranean to Rome and then eventually to Greece, giving lectures, offering talks, and con conversing with many elite Christians of the time. 
But after 215, the tensions between Demetrius and Origen grow sharper as he traveled around parts of the Mediterranean, giving lectures and interacting with elite Christians. Origen's fame had spread and his charisma seemed to put the ecclesiastical authority of Demetrius especially in danger. On his way to Greece, where he had been invited, Origen passes through Caesarea, which is in modern-day Palestine. There, he was probably or was ordained as a presbyter, and this really sets Demetrius off, along with some word of possible speculations of Origen about the salvation of the devil. At this point, Demetrius replaces Origen with another teacher at the Catechetical School of Alexandria, and Origen doesn't return instead spending the rest of his life writing and teaching in Caesarea. Lest we give the wrong impression that uh, the academic model of Christianity is invariably heretical, uh, it's worth noting that, like, Justin Martyr, who we've talked a lot about on this show, at least insofar as we've talked about the second century, is sort of the stand-in for the proto-Orthodox in Rome, was himself the head of such a school, um, particularly the martyrdom of Justin describes his school meetings. And we have other people like Tatian who claim to have been a student of Justin. So certainly early on, Christianity is something of a Greco-Roman association, which sort of forms the ecclesia. But already in the second century, Proto-Orthodox and other kinds of Christians are forming schools around important Christian teachers. And this probably has something to do with the fact that religion as we have it isn't really an operative category back then and so when christianity comes onto the scene and has this sort of totalizing discourse that gives you an ethics and gives you a cosmology and also tells you you can't you know be offering sacrifices and things like that and one of the natural places to slot christian teaching and life is philosophy so early on christians talk about their beliefs and practice as a philosophy and of course where do you learn, study, philosophy? You do that in an academic setting. When you think of school, you might think of a school room or an institution or maybe even a university that has a lot of infrastructure and a curriculum. And some of these things were true when we say a school in antiquity. But in some cases, especially at this time, it might be best to think of schools as reading circles. To give one example, the famous Neoplatonic philosopher Plotinus had such a reading circle in Rome. Plotinus himself had studied in Alexandria under the famous teacher Ammonius Saccus, where he read lots of works of Plato, Aristotle, and commentators. In Rome, he had a similar kind of thing, where he had lots of different people, noblemen, also noble women, children, and many others gathered around and would live together and study these works. They read commentators, but they didn't just read. Plotinus then would offer his own thoughts, extension, and syntheses. More importantly, we shouldn't think of a disinterested teacher coming in to dump content and leaving. This was often a charismatic circle of life. Plotinus' disciples lived with him, and they preserved lots of stories about his more than academic exploits, including one time when he was cursed by a magician, and the power of his soul, Porphyry tells us, made the curse rebound onto the one cursing him. So we shouldn't necessarily think about sort of modern disinterested classroom, although there was curriculum and reading much like we have today. So the kind of Christianity that Athanasius is dealing with when he looks at Alexandria and is trying to impose his vision of orthodoxy and in, in Nicene order onto it is this kind of Christianity that is very centered around 
the speculative philosophical work of these individual charismatic teachers. So how is Athanasius going to take this on? One of the tools Athanasius has at his disposal is to try to rein in the power of these schools by imposing a list of canonical sources on them. The way that these schools tend to operate, they draw from a very wide range of texts, right? This is because of the belief in the spermatic logos, the idea that there's this sort of uh, this foundational wisdom that can be found throughout the whole world. And if one simply has the right philosophical tools with which to go searching for it, one can find wisdom in all kinds of texts. The academic model of Christianity doesn't really need a very closed canon, as, as long as the reader or the, is the charismatic interpreter reader is reading the text right, he or she will be able to arrive at the truth by themselves. And while that may sound kind of weird, one of the earliest examples of this approach to Christianity is, again, Justin Martyr, who not only explicitly describes the Logos Spermaticos that infuses all sorts of traditions with truth and wisdom, but himself seems to have a very open or fluid canon. He cites gospel traditions that aren't found in our gospels, and when he does reflect our gospels, he doesn't seem to be particularly interested in the text form that's in front of him. So this is found, obviously, in Basilidean schools, as well as in proto-Orthodox approaches to Christianity. When Athanasius is taking on heresy, a great weapon for fighting what he sees as heresy is closing this canon and is limiting the list of sources that a teacher can work from to these books that tend to be uh, more embraced by the Episcopal Church and which leaves less room for speculation and creation of new doctrine. Athanasius takes this on two ways. One is by disputing the role of the teacher as a source of authority and wisdom, right? So most of these charismatic teachers are um, teaching out of their own virtues and their own authority. And Athanasius says, we don't have these human teachers who we look to for doctrine. We have Jesus, the teacher. Jesus is the authoritative teacher. We don't need these other teachers as long as we have him. Where do we find the words of Jesus? Well, we find them in these 27 books that are uh, accepted by the Episcopacy. One place where we can see this tension of Christ as teacher versus human teachers is in Athanasius's polemic against Arius. Arius is remembered by later writers as an intellectual, someone who, from his own writings, we can see was very educated, well-spoken, and, some people say, well-dressed. But Athanasius is worried about that kind of intellectual freedom endangering the authority of the Episcopal Church. So the conflict with Arius presses Athanasius to specify the meaning of teacher and to restrict it to Christ alone. So Arius, in one of his surviving works, although surviving only through indirect text tradition, the Thalia, introduces himself as a particularly gifted teacher in the academic model and as the inheritor of a succession of wise teachers. The, the model of a teacher who gets his or her wisdom from the charismatic teacher ahead of them and ahead of them and ahead of them, this is, this is a hallmark of the Hellenistic school and the academic model of Christianity. And this is specifically the kind of thing that Athanasius, at least in theory, says he's going after. Right. He says we don't need someone who is getting wisdom from a succession of teachers because Jesus is wisdom himself. So he doesn't need to inherit a set of doctrines or a teaching. And this is interesting on two levels. Not only does it contrast sources of authority in current 4th century debates, you know, the academic versus the ecclesiastical model, which Athanasius is, you know, the kind of Christian who's saying we just have the Bible, quote unquote. 
but also it reflects a debate within Christology because Arius claimed that the word was taught by the father. So this point that Athanasius is making is doing double work. Um, it's fighting a sociological fight and also he is denying something that the Arians claim. As a brief note here, it's important to remember that Athanasius is writing a number of decades after Arius himself was the center of the controversy. Instead, we're at a stage of the development of a Nicene theology that is against a broader Arianism, working out these ideas about mediation and how to think of Christ in relation to the Father. It's also worth pointing out that the criticism of this model where a wise teacher teaches a student who then goes on to be a teacher himself, uh, it's worth pointing out that this model actually, as much as Athanasius apparently says he disagrees it, actually looks a lot like the model by which bishops and, um, and Episcopal leaders get their authority. And Athanasius himself says, of course, we have this wisdom directly from Jesus, that Jesus is himself wisdom. But Athanasius also makes a point of saying that he got his teaching of the true doctrine from Alexander. There's a little bit of a tension here that I think is worth pointing out. Nice. So just to summarize this section really quickly, what Bracky's point is here is that when Athanasius is talking about the canon and what goes into it, we're not really debating the contents of a New Testament canon. We're debating what a New Testament canon is for. In Athanasius's construction, the entire reason to limit the canon is because the canon is itself this authoritative witness to to the Logos, and if we look outside of this, we're not getting that witness anymore. Whereas the academic model he is engaging with can afford to have fuzzier edges at the canon because the, the canon itself is not the authority. It's the way that they're reading it. It's the wisdom that is revealed in this, in this canon. And that's not to deny that there are, in fact, debates over books. But Bracky's point, as Laura said, is over the notion of a strictly closed canon. Even if, in practice, this too is only notional, because Athanasius, to justify these sorts of claims, himself has to appeal to a succession of teachers. So far, we've been mostly talking about the first half of Bracky's argument, which is how Athanasius' construction of a canon is meant to adjudicate conflicts over true teaching in Alexandria. The second part of the argument is similar, but it focuses not so much on teaching, but on authority specifically. And this has to do with controversies over rival Episcopal organizations in Alexandria, especially those associated with the so-called Miletians. The Miletians take their name from Miletus, the Bishop of Lycopolis, who, after the time of the great persecution of Diocletian in 303, began to start a rival Episcopal structure. During the time of the persecution, many bishops were imprisoned or exiled, and one of these was Peter of Alexandria, the well-known bishop of Alexandria. At this time, you might think that there'd be a bit of a vacuum, but we know from letters that bishops had already arranged for visitors and others to serve the administrative and catechetical roles needed. Nevertheless, Miletus seems to have seen this as an opportunity to come from Upper Egypt in Lycopolis and establish his own authorities in Alexandria. He began to ordain people and this immediately raised the ire of those imprisoned bishops who felt that he had overstepped his bounds. And Miletus is condemned by Peter, but is allowed to retain some of his title, and the ordained folks are able to retain their positions. Nevertheless, this conflict between two overlapping rival structures continues even to the time of Athanasius. 
So we probably don't have any writings by the Miletians themselves, but their opponents consistently criticize them for their use of other scriptures. And this is probably why they're singled out by Athanasius in this festal letter. It seems that in particular, according to Bracchi, the Miletians were using books attributed to Enoch, Moses, and Isaiah that Athanasius did not himself consider canonical. This is another really interesting case, like those we talked about in our Bauer episode, where it seems like a generally accepted or at least allowed practice in the diversity of 2nd century Christianities actually kind of gets left behind by developing orthodoxy. Because these texts that are probably being referred to here, in particular the Book of Enoch and the Ascension of Isaiah, seem to have been used by a lot of early Christians including authors found in the New Testament. So Athanasius has an answer for this. What do we do with the fact that canonical authors are citing these non-canonical texts? Well, Athanasius suggests that what's actually happening is that the apocryphal texts don't predate the New Testament, and the New Testament writers are citing them, but that this is happening the other way around. That these apocryphal texts are uh, written by heretics who are themselves plagiarizing the New Testament. So the specific place he proposes this is in 1 Corinthians 2.9, uh, where Paul says, what no eye has seen. Athanasius says that those who invented these books have secretly stolen from the words of Paul and written it at a later time. What, what Athanasius is saying in that quote is that the Miletians are themselves writing these texts and ripping off Paul and putting these Paul quotes in there. But we actually have pre-Miletian church fathers who acknowledge the fact that Paul is in 1 Corinthians citing the ascension of Isaiah. Um, and this is a similar dynamic to what happens in the book of Jude. Uh, the book of Jude cites First Enoch. Athanasius doesn't make particular reference to this Jude citation, but it is out there. And it's part of why the Miletians consider First Enoch to be canonical. And most scholars today think that First Enoch and Ascension of Isaiah are, in fact, you know, Second Temple Jewish texts that were not necessarily composed in order to give Paul something to cite. Right. <laughs> now, you might be wondering what these books have to do with Athanasius' conflict with the Miletians. But Bracchi shows us that the conflict seems to be over the spiritual authority of the martyrs. Miletians were known for continuing very devoted martyr cult. That wasn't a problem for him. But at these, people were said to prophesy. And so Athanasius is worried about this kind of extra-episcopal authority. And these texts bolster this authority because, especially in the ascension of Isaiah, Isaiah's own visions and spiritual authority derived from his martyrdom at the hands of Manasseh. So we can see that these texts in themselves may be innocuous, but when connected with the dangerous prophecy that Athanasius sees at these martyr celebrations— become connected with a larger contest over what Bracchi calls divination. Right, so we've outlined two groups of enemies for Athanasius. The academics as emblematized in Arius and the Miletians. And Bracchi argues compellingly that Athanasius's canon list is a tool or a weapon he is using to combat both of these groups. That is, the very notion of a closed canon as your sole ground for authority is, for Athanasius, a way of robbing, on one hand, charismatic intellectual teachers of their authority, and on the other hand, inspired martyr prophets, who the Miletians are appealing to for authority. 
What Athanasius isn't doing is reassessing each book on a set of criteria about whether or not we can in fact determine that third John is apostolic or or has a continuing succession of usage. Reader, it doesn't. But instead, making a move to ground authority in a set of books as opposed to teachers and martyr prophets. Put another way, it shows us that canon formation is deeply integrated with the social and political conflicts of the time. We shouldn't think about the criteria as an abstract category, but as something embroiled with these two struggles, charismatic teachers, and on the other hand, martyr prophets. One interesting question we can ask about this festal letter is, we know it now is the first 27-book canon of of the New Testament, right? But we shouldn't think of this as the birth of the 27-book canon that was subsequently uh, the standard set for, for the early church. It's actually really an open question how effective this book actually was in setting in setting the standard of what the canon should be. Two of our most important and complete manuscripts of the New Testament, uh, Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus, both contain books that are noticeably not on Athanasius's list. And the fact that these are longer and contain these show that even if Athanasius had his 27-book list for the canon, this list was not followed everywhere, and it wasn't seen authoritative everywhere for quite some time. And the interesting thing about those two works is they they seem to have come from Alexandria at roughly the same time or slightly after Athanasius himself. So, for instance, Alexandrinus has the Epistle of Barnabas in it, which we know Didymus the Blind, one of Athanasius's um, slightly elder fellow proto-Orthodox Alexandrians, cited as scripture. What we can say did seem to win with Athanasius, though, even if Athanasius wasn't the the sole architect of this, is that Athanasius' vision of what the canon should be did win. That I, I think that most people who are who study post-Nicene Christianity actually see something a lot more of what Athanasius envisions as the canon is is being the dominant theology. That it is a mediator of a, a limited set of doctrinal ideas that are taught by the priests and mediated through sacraments and church services, instead of this more open-ended speculative approach that was a major force in Christianity before the Nicene uh, before the Nicene Council. While I pretty much agree with Laura's description, one of the interesting things is that Athanasius has this third category, this ca- category of useful books that should be used in catechizing Christians that dies out. Bracky says it's a sort of a, a relic of the earlier academic model where there are lots of books that should be used as authoritative scriptures in teaching Christians that Athanasius has a place for, but it doesn't really work. So this included works like the Didache, uh, the Epistle of Barnabas, the Shepherd of Hermas, and yes, those are all going to get their own episodes at some point, as useful books for teaching Christians. And these are some of the most popular books we have in early Christian literature. There's more copies of the Shepherd of Hermas surviving than almost anything in the New Testament. Uh, but this, this middle category doesn't last very long. And as we think about the eventual victory of this Athanasian canon, we should wonder a little bit about a chicken or an egg question. Was it the canon itself, or was it this consolidated Episcopal model? And it does seem that the growing focus on the monarchy of the bishop and a uniform Catholic church may have been a strong factor in 
normalizing the canon. So there's an especially fun development in the reception of this article. But about 15 years later, we discovered new fragments of Athanasius's Festa letter. The whole thing doesn't survive in any language. So we found some new fragments of it uh, in Coptic. This both confirmed one of Brachy's analytical points and predictions and problematized one of them. On the first side of things, Brachy had in his article suggested that Miletians might have appealed to something like 1 Corinthians 2 in support of their use of the Ascension of Isaiah. But this wasn't in the letter. Well, it turns out this new fragment, Athanasius says exactly that. He says that the Miletians are appealing to exactly that passage in Paul to support their use of these books. These things are always nice to point out when people say all history writing is just fiction. The second discovery, though, some people have said weighs against Brachy's analysis. Um, and that is, we discovered that after the discussion of canon, Athanasius gives a list of heretics whom this canon, uh, he says, disproves. And these include the Marcionites, the Manichaeans, and the Phrygians, which is the Montanists. And these are people who are all associated with both writing new scriptures and, to a lesser extent with Montanists, uh, academic models of, of Christianity. Bracky, in a 2010 article, argues that this doesn't really invalidate any of his points. This only sort of broadens the implications of his argument. That, yes, the Arians may have emblematized academic models, and the Miletians may have emblematized this martyr-prophet problem and the issue of... Um, other kinds of scripture around the edges. But there were other groups that the same critique and the same localization of authority within a set list of scriptures could be weaponized against. And he argues that this catalog of heresies just illustrates other groups that Athanasius would have understood to be excluded by his canon list. Well, thank you so much, Nate, for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. We'll have to have you back at some point. Hey, so fun announcement, Ian. Laura. We are breaking into a new medium. This will be the New Testament review after party. If we said something that you don't like or that you want to hear more about or you just want us to expand on, come to the after party. Come to the YouTube show and you can, in the live chat, engage with us. We can have a, a conversation back and forth. Um, you can ask questions, you can offer pushback, that sort of thing there. Awesome. And we can also just talk about the New Testament in general, just anything you guys are interested in. We can talk about past shows, but we're just going to, there's a new thing we're going to start For doing. sure. And the plan for now is just to do an after party the night of our release for each episode. So once a month, we'll be able to discuss with you whatever book we reviewed. So come to the New Testament Review YouTube channel. We'll post links to this on our Twitter, and you can also just find it by going to YouTube and searching New Testament yep. Review. Awesome. We're excited. We'll see you there. See you tonight. Take care.